again, I have to say it was amazing and the time of my life and fantastic, but it was definitely driven by trauma and that need to kind of escape and make best of a situation. Because within that time as well, I married and was also widowed at the age of 23. Mm. So it was very much, like my husband was dead. My dad was recovering. I had, I was recovering from an eating disorder and I was like, look, all these things have happened and I'm 23. I can either let that define me for the rest of my life and that be what I'm known for, or I can take that and try and actually feel empowered and actually use that as my drive to have an impact on the world. gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. By the age of just 23, Amy Malloy had lived a life most people wouldn't experience in a lifetime. A widow recovering from a severe eating disorder with a father who made a miraculous recovery from the brink of death, Amy channeled her trauma the only way she knew how. She put pen to paper. The author of two books, along with an extraordinary career as a magazine editor, Amy was born in the UK but now calls the south coast of New South Wales home, where she lives with her husband, two children, and they have another baby on the way. Amy discusses with me the many ways she has turned her lemons into an opportunity to help other people, including her latest project, a collection of children's books, which help kids identify and process emotions, and it's framed in such a way it soothes the adult reading it too. Absolutely genius. Amy is a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I've no doubt you'll enjoy listening to this chat as much as I enjoyed chatting with her. Here she is. Amy, thank you so much for being here and for driving two hours to me. You say it's not a big deal, but I'm very appreciative. Um, my pleasure to be here. We, um, I've been following you and creeping on you on Instagram for about a year now, so I'm very, very chuffed to be sitting in front of you. And with you, there's just so many layers. There's so much I want to talk about and get into. But I think before I overwhelm myself, the best thing would be just to start with your childhood and how life was like for you growing up. Yes, wow. So I grew up in um, on the edge of London, as you can tell from my accent. And just, yeah, I guess I always said, you know, very easy, happy upbringing. Um, very supportive parents, very stable upbringing with an older sister. However, I think in hindsight now, looking back, what has guided a lot of my work professionally is kind of this other layer to my childhood, which was there, um, which we were going to talk about today, which was mental health and mental illness. And that kind of underlying anxiety and depression that runs through the bloodline of the women in my family and how in hindsight... That impacted me when I was little and the little things that I noticed that we just thought were normal that actually as an adult I now think oh wow we absorbed that mm-hmm. and um, we learned a lot about the topic of mental health very young and that has kind of then imprinted on my work as an adult. 
That's really interesting because I know we, and we, I definitely want to get to the incredible children's books you've written about that. But can I, can I just delve into firstly, what were, what would you notice as a child? Well, I always remember when I was super young that kind of there were boxes of antidepressants stacked by the telephone. I literally have this image in my mind of like I would play with them like building blocks and build them up and build them down again. And kind of I knew the words of mainstream antidepressants. I knew what St. John's Wort tablets were. And they just became a kind of a normal vocabulary in my childhood. And it was my mum that suffered from... Well, I always thought she suffered from depression and actually... Now having adult conversations with her, I realized it was actually anxiety, um, as did other female members of my family. And I kind of remember there being good times and bad times um, sporadically as I grew up. And in the early years, of course, because I was so little, we didn't talk about it. But then as I became a teenager, and I ended up having an eating disorder myself, um, we began to talk about it a lot more openly, which was amazing and talk about the tools that my mum had used, continues to use, um, their fears about me and my sister inheriting certain conditions. And that really opened this incredible conversation that has enabled me to feel really emotionally empowered and hopefully do the same for my babies too. Excuse the ignorance, because I, I don't know, are those conditions hereditary? Can they be inherited? Not in the sense of kind of certain physical illness that, um, that can be inherited, but you can have a predisposition to it. So again, if certain life events put you in a certain stressful situation, you can have a predisposition to, whether through nature or nurture, um, kind of move into areas of anorexia or bulimia or something like that. Mm-hmm. And again, nature and nurture, if you, if you grow up in an anxious environment, of course, we see it with our babies and they are just little mirrors so they begin to reflect that anxiety too so when you say inherited it's kind of like a bit of a broader term it's not like it's embedded in our dna but it's very much you see it through bloodlines and i was very aware that i had a vulnerability to those conditions and that if i didn't work really hard to be happy like i always said and i say in my book um like I'm not a naturally happy person. Like I work really hard to be happy and therefore I am a happy person. But it's not just like I wake up every day with a spring in my step and off we go. What are the kind of ways that you learnt to cope as a child with a mother with anxiety that you would use now with your children or you might not use with your children? Yeah, a lot of, I was always very creative. So obviously I went into writing, um, became a journalist and author. And so for me, kind of storytelling and being really aware of my own story, even when I was little, um, became really important to me. So I remember like when I was maybe eight or nine on the way to school, if I was feeling anxious, I'd literally make up a story and like take a step back from my situation and look at it from the outside. I know, I'm like, I was so little. So I'd be like, as Amy walked along the road, it's so geeky. Like she felt a little bit nervous about her math test, but then she noticed like the sun shining and the green grass and she decided to blah, blah. And like literally make up this story about how I was feeling, which is hilarious now when you look at my career. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's how we got there. Um, But definitely like if something, if I was carrying around a really negative um, memory, I would do this kind of memory clearing exercise where I would kind of blink my eyes. I was probably like six or seven. (laughs) I would like close my eyes tight and just say to myself, that's gone and kind of imagine erasing my mind of that memory. 
So I think I always knew that I could really be a very heavy, anxious child if I carried everything with me that made me feel anxious. So I began to learn to kind of wipe my slate clean at the end of the day. Um, which, yeah, now I'm like, well, that's pretty incredible for a little kid to do that. Absolutely. So, to have that awareness, I think, is what's incredible. Yeah, exactly. And I think I talk a lot about mental illness now, and especially when you grow up in a family environment with any kind of mental illness. Um, and I think the positive of it is that it really emotionally empowers you. And you have to be like, okay, I'm going to take responsibility for how I feel on a daily basis. And I learned that so incredibly young. And actually, it served me really well. Because I was talking as a journalist, I was kind of pitching stories to editors about mental illness and mindfulness and what we need to do at a time when they were like, no one wants to read about this. Like, that's not, we want to talk about celebrities and whatever's on TV. There was such a time topics like that were pretty taboo as well. No one spoke about having a psychologist. Absolutely. And I was like so grateful that they actually did want to write about it and share it. But of course, in my family, we'd been talking about these topics for years which actually in hindsight I'm so lucky and happy that we did yeah absolutely and then I do want you did touch on it then you spoke about how you did develop an eating disorder what do you remember from that time and I I don't know if this is an an ignorant question do you know how how things like that start uh it's a question I've asked myself so much over the years and there's kind of I think for me it was a lot of different elements And, you know, there's a lot of cliches around eating disorders and many of them are true about it all, you know, wanting to be about control. Um, And, you know, it's very easy to kind of wrap it up for me in the sense that um, when when I was 17, my father was diagnosed diagnosed with cancer and was paralyzed from the waist down. So it'd be very easy for me to pin my eating disorder on that in quite a neat little package. But from obviously many, many years of exploring mental illness, I think I've learned that it's a lot more complex than that. So almost it'd be oversimplifying it to say it would just be that. There's a lot of elements of angst that I think go into a place where you begin to starve yourself. Um, I literally devote kind of two chapters to it in my book because there's a lot of layers to it. But of course, I also can't underestimate the impact of having your father in a wheelchair and kind of fighting for his life when you're a teenager and how that will impact the rest of your life in many different ways. It still impacts me as a 35-year-old. And so I think of myself, and I thought I was an adult at that point, but of course I was just a child Mm -hmm. um, having to cope with that situation, then it's just a lot. What do you remember from that time with your eating disorder? How bad did it get? It got really bad and I'm really cautious about how I talk about it. I think my media background has helped me a lot. I have some really clear boundaries because I do write about it, about, okay, I don't talk about exactly what I ate during that time, but it was very, very little to a point where I'm like, I don't know how I was standing or walking or breathing. Um, And it definitely got to the stage where it could have taken my life. Um, And, you know, there's things like I've had newspapers that want me to print pictures of myself at that rock bottom stage Mm. because, of course, it's fantastic clickbait. Mm. And I have just a rule that I don't share images of myself from that time um, because I know how easy it is for that to become inspiration for another girl like me because I would have looked at those photos and been like, oh, how's she doing it? I want to be that girl. And then read about. Exactly, and then read all the details and copied the eating plan or non-eating plan. So, and also I'm cautious about over-talking about it because my memory of it is so warped 
And, you know, there are scientific studies showing that, you know, your memory is so affected when you're in that starvation mode that I'm kind of unsure about which of my memories are true and which of them are kind of elaborated or um, sugar-coated. And so I remember very little, to be honest. I remember being very lonely um, and in pain a lot of the time. I still worked a lot. I still completed like a university degree and held down a job um, because that is kind of the, you know, motivation that you need probably to um, have a functioning eating disorder. Um, but yeah, I have, I think I blocked out a lot yeah. from that time. How did you overcome it? Did you have professional help? I did, which probably wasn't very effective for me at that point it was just a very slow process I literally um, came to Australia for a year from England and that was a massive time of healing for me Um, I just met my first husband and that was a big um, healing period for me but it really took probably seven or eight years and not one simple easy answer like I wish I could be like this was the solution Mm -hmm. but it was this very slow journey to get me and it was really probably only when I met my now husband which was four or five years ago that I could honestly say I'm free of it Wow! which so that's a it's not really what people want to hear when they're in the midst of it like this might take you 10 years to really be out of its grip but it's still for me a message of hope that like one day you can say I'm out. Absolutely. And how do you think that experience combined with what your father, watching what your father went through, shaped you? I think it it probably impacts on my day every day now. Um, just not taking certain things for granted. Like I wish kind of I. I think I learned a lot probably too young. Like I knew all the names for different types of chemo. I used to go and sit in what we called chemo club with my dad and like share out the sandwiches. And I was like 17, 18 years old. Um, like I knew a lot medically about things and I knew probably too much about what could go wrong yeah. overnight in the human body. Cause literally my dad went to bed one night healthy and well in our view and woke up the next day and the tumour had grown around his spine and cut off the feeling to his legs. So I think it was that shock of like any moment now your world could change that never leaves you once you realise it in such a jarring way. But that has also, on the flip side, given me such a gratitude for when life is good, just, oh my God, appreciate it. Or when life is just okay, oh my God, appreciate it. Because you just don't know tomorrow what could be taken away from you and so I really try and I don't always get it right at all but I really try to hang on to that. And what what kind of cancer did he have and how is he now? He had Hodgkin's lymphoma and he's now amazing he's like my superhero so he had a stem cell transplant way back this was kind of 10 years ago um, when it was really quite revolutionary and they basically say that they kind of strip your body down to like 1% of living and then they build you back up again. So he was in isolation for like 30 days. No one could go into the room with him. Um, 
and now he's yes he's visiting at the moment from england Aww. he's cycling up and down the hills of kayama he's literally learned to walk again we watched him learn to walk again um literally like when he could only take five steps across our living room and now he's just yeah superhuman so what does that teach you watching somebody that is now bike riding up hills <laughs> he is such a big influence on me and always someone i hold up as an example of like when you hear kind of about meditation and mindfulness and all if any of this like positive mentality like bs that people can say and everyone's like well that's just a bit hippie put that in the box over there like my dad was like this skeptical atheist like from this like super rough like london family never would have like said anything spiritual in his life um and in the midst of his chemo like when he literally said himself like he would have done anything to feel like he could survive um someone introduced him to kind of reiki and meditation (laughs) and now he's like this very subtle like to the outside he looks the same but like his pockets are filled with crystals he's got like (laughs) he like meditates twice a day like me and him have these beautiful deep conversations about philosophy and buddhism and like life and like he's just but he's very quiet about it like he doesn't like put it on to you but if he feels like like he goes to if we have a friend who's been diagnosed with cancer or something like that he will go and sit with them and talk to them and share his story um in this very humble and unassuming way and yeah to me it's just real he's a symbol of the journey that you can take in a time adversity and how you can make it the best thing to happen to you oh absolutely what an incredible example to have for you and your children yeah (laughs) actually do you want to get him here now please (laughs) um you launch very uh quickly headfirst into a career in journalism um and writing and you worked up your way up the ranks also very quickly can you talk to me a bit about your career yeah so i mean you know driven by tragedy as many of us high achievers are um i after my dad was sick and then began recovery and then i came to australia for a year and finished my degree and then returned to london i got a job at the daily mail and then kind of worked my way through the newspapers in england um ended up at grazia magazine in london and then was poached over to grazia australia mm, and it all happened at a young age wasn't it yes yeah, so i was editor by kind of 27. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a whirlwind <laughs> and within that time i also signed a book deal and published my first book okay so. and i've done nothing and i'm 29. <laughs> I know I feel like I peaked very early <laughs> it was all just after that just coasted along um I were I mean again I have to say it was amazing and the time of my life and fantastic but it was definitely driven by trauma and that need to kind of escape and make best of a situation because within that time as well I married and was also widowed at the age of 23 mm-hmm. so it was very much like my husband was dead my dad was recovering. I had, I was recovering from an eating disorder and I was like, look, all these things have happened and I'm 23. I can either let that define me for the rest of my life and that be what I'm known for, or I can take that and try and actually feel empowered and actually use that as my drive to have an impact on the world. And that was through the, your career? Yeah, and it was probably accidental at first. I just knew I wanted to be a journalist. I loved writing. 
I wanted to just kind of, you know, become an editor of a magazine. But then subtly, I began to gravitate towards telling the stories of people who'd survived amazing circumstances. So really, I was kind of a form of therapy for me. So at Grazia, I interviewed kind of the survivors of tsunamis and 9-11 and all these natural disasters and, you know, um, suicidal attempts and all these real periods of adversity in other people's lives that were worse in my eyes than what I'd been through. And I just wanted to hear from them, like, how on the other side are you surviving? What are your coping mechanisms? How are you still smiling? Um, because definitely on some level, I then use those in my life. And all those articles became the basis, you know, eight years later of my book, The World is a Nice Place. I was going to ask you that, about that as well, because what was the biggest takeaway for you from hearing all these kinds of stories? I think the overarching message was like, you can just take ownership, like you don't have to be a victim to like that just being your lot. Because I do remember with the best will in the world, my mum said to me after my first husband died, she said, because they watched me at the age of 23, like nurse a terminally ill man on my own, watch him die in front of me. And my mum said like to me, like you don't need to achieve anything with your life. That is the ultimate thing that you could do for me, watching you care for someone to the death. And I thought, you know, I, I hear what you're saying and I know that's a compliment and I know you're saying that with so much love, but like, I don't want that to be my lot. I don't want that to be like the highest light of my life at, and at 23, like I need more. And so I think hearing from all these like empowered survivors as I called them, that like you can have an afterlife after trauma just gave me hope that I could too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, he, was he unwell when you did get married? Is that right? Yes, so he wasn't when we met and then he had um, skin cancer, which by the time they found out had already spread to his liver, lungs, can- pancreas, and then finally his brain. So um, we got engaged when we knew he was sick but we weren't quite sure how sick he was. And of course, I had the example of my dad who'd made this miraculous recovery. So I was very much like glass half full, we'd be fine. Um, And then we were told he had approximately three months to live and he asked if we could get married before he died. Um, So we did have this big, beautiful white wedding with the help of a lot of people who helped us set it up and he died three weeks later. And you don't have to say this if you don't feel comfortable, but what was the rationale behind getting married, knowing he didn't have that long to live? I think we, well, I, I can speak for myself. I was in denial, definitely. I was just thinking, this is part of our story. We're going to get married and then we're going to beat the cancer and on we go. Like we, I've got journal entries that he wrote in hospital talking about our children mm-hmm. and, you know, the the... Um, home that we were going to build in the country and I don't know how much he believed it but I did believe it Um, so I think we were very much getting married to then begin a stage of life Um, and we were able to survive even the wedding day by believing that. I'm mm-hmm. um, saying that well, there were definite clues now in hindsight that both of us were cracking and were realizing what the reality really was, um, but we definitely weren't really facing up to it. So we were just two people in love and we were just hopeful that we believed that we could be anything, including you know terminal cancer. But, and I had evidence that you could, but obviously in his situation, we couldn't. Can you describe what it's like losing your husband and who you thought as well and probably still is in many ways the love of your life at 23 and becoming a widow 
it's very surreal. Mm. You're very alone. And I ended up writing my first book, Wife Interrupted, because there was nothing, it's got better since then, but at the time, all the literature on this is how you recover from widowhood, widowhood was really aimed at kind of, you know, women in their 60s who'd spent this long life and had a family and now what do you do with the, your remaining days? There was nothing that I felt like related to me. Um, and my first bit became quite controversial because it was about how I dealt with being widowed by moving to London into a shared house, going out partying, having lots of sex with lots of different men and just being really promiscuous. Mm. Because my friends who were going through breakups, that's what they did, like to get over one man, you get under another. <laughs> like that's just what you're told. So I was like, well, I'm 23, I've lost someone I love, like that must be the package that I should buy into too. But of course, you know, you're not meant to do that when you're widowed. Mm. Um, so I ended up writing a book, which was really just one long, uncensored diary. <laughs> My poor family um, that told that story and how, you know, being widowed doesn't look neat and it doesn't always, isn't always very PC, but this is how messy it is trying to get over being widowed so young and figure out what is next for you. Did you have women who are in who walk the same path as you reach out? Oh, so many. And I was saying to my husband the other day, because that book was really just like a cathartic. I wrote it and I released it into the world. And, you know, 10 years later, I don't do anything to promote it. I don't track the figures. It really just lives its own life. And yet still on a weekly basis, I get emails from people um, across the world because it's been translated. Like someone sent me the Portuguese cover last week. Wow. And I was like, I didn't even know it was there. Um, and it seems to just reach somehow organically the people that need it. Yeah. So I constantly get messages still from people saying, like, thank you for writing that book. And it's strange because I feel so removed from it. Mm. I'm like, I'm so glad it's happy. But like, this is my life 10 years on. And that was kind of a different girl that wrote that. But I'm really happy that it's helped you. But I just have to trust it kind of reaches the people yeah, it needs to reach. Naturally and meant to be. It, does it almost feel like you're probably reflecting on it's like a girl in a past life. It just oh. doesn't probably feel like reality. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's probably true for most of us with like our 23-year-old self when we're in our mid-30s. But definitely with such a big life shift. Um, and like I don't regret anything and I don't regret writing it. I certainly wouldn't be brave enough to write a book like that now. <laughs> it's what happens when you're young, isn't it? You just think everyone wants to hear, wants to be privy to every thought you have. Absolutely. And it was written exactly as it should have been written. And my husband, my first husband actually said um, in his very last days, he said, you need to write the book of our story, but promise me you'll only do it if you're 100% um, truthful and 100% honest and don't care what my family think don't care what you'll think if you're going to do it you need to do it truthfully and I certainly did that <laughs> you did it proud I did read you say that you were using his death almost as a get out of jail free card and like a badge of honor and you mentioned it before that you'd cared for the love of your life and he died and that was it and that was the end of the story how do you get out of that mentality and begin rebuilding and moving on yeah I think, again, my dad has been such an amazing example because I think it's very easy with anything that goes wrong in our life, whether it's a breakup or an illness or we lose a job. And, you know, 
it's fine in the short term for that to be everything we think about and talk about and define ourselves with. But I do think there has to become a point where you're like, I'm not going to let that be me. And there was definitely a time in my mid-20s where I was like, I can do what the hell I want. I can be selfish and I can say what I want to people and I can hurt people because I'm hurting. And so all I have to do is be like, but I was widowed and that's going to be my excuse to get away with anything. And I pushed away my family and... Yeah, I was pretty rude to a lot of people probably. And definitely with relationships and guys, I didn't treat them well, but I would always say, but I'm kind of wounded and hurting and that's just my identity. Exactly, and you knew what you signed up for. So then no matter what I do, you know who I am. Um, And I had to get to a point where I was like, I don't want to be that person. Even if I could have an excuse to be that person, I don't want to. And again, my dad has never been a victim to uh, a tough childhood he had or his later illness that he had. He's never used that as an excuse to feel sorry for himself or to be self-centered. And he's a really good example to me to not. You can talk about it and it can be and absolutely be a part of who you are, but don't use it as an excuse to act in a way that you don't think is right. Such incredible advice. What were the lessons apart from that one now looking back you learned from his death and the time preceding it? Mm. I think letting yourself grow, it would have been really easy to get stuck in that point. And that's what I've seen in some stories that I've run and people I've interviewed and later women I've mentored and worked with is that especially with any kind of like childhood trauma, we get stuck in that moment and we just never allow ourselves to move on. Like it was interesting when you were saying earlier about like him being the love of my life and how you move on from that. Like he was at that moment, but he isn't now. And I think being honest with yourself about the fact that like even if he had survived, we may not be together now. Our relationship may not be strong now. We probably would have grown apart because we met very young and we actually were very different people. So kind of allowing yourself to say, like I would say with storytelling, like that was my truth now, um, then, but that doesn't have to be my truth now. And how I remembered that memory back then doesn't have to be how I think about it now. So I've had to let myself grow into a 30-year-old instead of getting stuck as a 23-year-old who entire world revolved around this man let myself escape from that absolutely because and we spoke about um before the interview started I asked you would you have ever imagined imagined when you were in that time that 10 years like not even 10 years later you'd be living in Australia in a beautiful coastal town with two children and married was that ever in the realm of possibility of happening to Amy Not at all. I remember after my first husband dying, like saying to my housemates, like, I'm never going to get married. I've never had kids. I've done my stint of caring for someone and I definitely don't want to have anyone dependent on me ever again. So I was just like, nut gun, that's it. And I think that was part of it, like giving yourself permission to be happy, being like, do you know what? That did happen in my past, but actually on a day-to-day weekly basis, it doesn't impact me that I was widowed. Like I don't think about it. I don't talk about it. It doesn't impact my relationship with my husband. There are times where certain specific things have triggered it. Like when I was planning my wedding to my now husband, of course there were things that it triggered about my first marriage. But just on a typical, you know, building a home and having a family now, it doesn't 
cast this big shadow over us at all. I think that's really important for people to hear because I think when you're in the midst of something very heartbreaking or tragic or something really terrible has happened, you think that is it forever and you're going to live in that space forever. So I think that's really refreshing for a lot of people to hear you going, it doesn't impact my day. Something so horrendous doesn't impact my day now. And not to automatically blame it if there is something wrong. Like after my last son was born, I had postnatal depletion, a bit of postnatal anxiety. And when I went to see the doctor and I said, I feel like I'm grieving. I've just got this sadness. And logically, she said, do you think it's kind of you being widowed that's those memories coming up? And I was like, that would be a very neat excuse. (laughs) But like, it's nothing to do with that. And I think sometimes we can automatically go like, oh, it must be because my dad had cancer. It must be because I was widowed or because of my eating disorder, where it might not be. And actually, it's good to be really conscious about what you blame on your past. Sometimes it will be that, but don't just automatically go there. And does that relate, I guess, to the stories that we tell ourselves about our past and about who we are in our future and how dangerous they sometimes can be? Absolutely. And like my, my now husband was always really great at I told him very early on one of our first dates, well, not our first, probably our fifth date, that I'd been married and widowed. And he just said, I'm not going to ask you any questions, but if it's relevant and you ever feel like you need to talk about it, then I'm happy to talk about it. And he probably actually knows very, very minimal details about it. He's never read any my book about it. Um, he's never really needed to know everything, but he trusts that if it's really relevant, I will share it with him. Mm-hmm. And I think... At the beginning, I was a bit like, oh, he doesn't want to know like my entire life story. And then I thought, actually, if it's not relevant to us, exactly. Like, I want him to ask, read my memoir. But actually, like, I'm like, well, if it's not relevant to us, why should I be keep bringing it up, bringing it up, bringing it up every day? Like, who is that actually helping? Um, so now, yeah, we, I mean, we barely talked about it except that it's super relevant and beneficial to us to do so and because it is so easy to get bogged down in that past and those past stories what advice would you have for people that do feel a bit bogged down or do feel like they're never going to be able to move on from that yeah I think oh do you know what social media makes it harder like I was widowed in a pretty much free social media world I think I did have Facebook but like it certainly wasn't part of my daily world. And I remember friends beginning, like on my husband's anniversary of his birthday and his death, people would tag me in pictures of him and I would just be like, oh God, this is just not helping me at all. So I think one of my things would be just, you know, simply be really cautious about what you put out there mm-hmm. and what you can control. You can't control some of the conversations people have and how they might want to revisit a difficult time in your life. You have to let them be okay with that. Um, but you can control how much energy you put into it yourself. Mm-hmm. So generally, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who kind of on the anniversary of my first husband's death puts up a post just because I feel like I should or regurgitates our stories in a way that I don't think is beneficial. Like I talk about it when I genuinely feel like it can help people, but I'm not just gonna put up photos just for the sake of Mm -hmm. kind of clickbait. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And just trying not to get caught in that trap. Absolutely, that's really good advice. What do you remember about meeting your now husband and how did that relationship, I guess, change and shape you? (laughs) Well, we were in 
basically Tasmania in the middle of the rainforest, hiking 140 kilometers across the Tarkine. <laughs> and this is when I just kind of left my job as a magazine editor. So it was certainly not in my comfort zone at all. But I had agreed to take part in this kind of charity expedition um, with 10 people to hike across the Tarkine to raise awareness of mining in the area. Um, and my housemate at the time was organizing it. And I think I knew eight of the people and my husband was one of the people that I didn't know. And it was very, I mean, it was just very instant. I always say, I don't even remember being like, well, I want to be with him romantically. I just remember thinking, I just need to be around this person. However that looks, however he wants that to be, I just need to be around his energy as much as possible. Um, and literally three weeks later, we moved in together and then had a yeah pretty well in life after that. So I think it's five years later, um, two kids and one on the way. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just been easy, very easy. I mean, of course, with all the challenges that come with a relationship and a growing family and two ambitious careers. Um, but generally, like on an everyday, I was saying to you before our podcast, we literally wake up in the morning and we just say, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. Because we, I think we're both astonished because I think as he, re as he reached 30, he had all but given up on finding that person. Yeah. And I definitely didn't think it was going to be in my future. Really? You just thought that, that well, you, were, you were pretty settled and happy with being single? I don't think I'd be, I didn't think I'd be single. Um, I knew I'd be with somebody, but I don't think I ever thought it would be like that magical one that you're just amazed by. Because again, like people had said to me, oh, you know, you have that one, That's yeah. one that one's gone. Um, so I think I was pretty open to just settling and just being okay. And not in a, even a negative way, in a quite peaceful, contented way, but just not... You already had it. Exactly. And then to meet someone who I was literally astonished by on a daily basis and still am... Um, yeah, I didn't think that was going to happen. Wow, that's really magical. You have, and you touched on it before about postnatal anxiety or depression, or what was that like for you following the birth of your son, I think you said? Mm. So I think the best, um, there's a condition now called postnatal depletion, which is much more about you physically getting worn down and then the knock on effect on your emotional state. So, of course, because, you know, it's on my medical records that mental illness is in my family. Postnatal depression was always on my radar. Mm. And with my first child, my little girl, I sailed through it. It was no problem at all. And then when my little boy came along, he was only born 18 months after my daughter. Wow. Um, and about three weeks after my book was launched. So it was just, a cra I mean, a wonderful, like lots of amazing things, but also a lot. Yeah. And in that kind of former eating disorder perfectionist A-type mentality that I have or have when I'm not in control of it, I just said, oh, second baby's come. Life's not going to be any different. I can do everything. He came to all my TV interviews. He did all the book launches and all the speaking gigs. And on to the outside, you know, it all looked fantastic. Like but, oh, fantastic. Instagram, like amazing. But I felt this deep sense of disconnection to it all and like I said this grief that I felt like I carried around and weepiness and sadness and for someone I'm so used to being able to emotionally soothe myself and bring in all those tools I've used for a decade to, when I found they weren't working I was just like oh my gosh what's happening here and of course you know hormonally I was out of balance my b12 was through the floor my iron was through the floor but I didn't find out that out till later I just knew that nothing I had used before 
was working anymore. And so what did you do to overcome that? I finally just went to the doctor and had blood tests and started B12 injections, which literally, if anyone comes to me and says the symptoms that I knew I had, like loss of libido, inability to control your own mood when you normally can, and just in chronic exhaustion, I always say, go and have your B12 checked. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as I started having, I remember the nurse who gave it to me said, um, and it just made me cry. She said, with your, I, with your B12 levels this low, I do not know how you've been raising two children. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> you see me. But literally that day, and she said, you'll feel the difference today. And I did. Wow, that's so, incredible to think. You were just not, I just never would have thought one little nutrient. And then when I looked on the support groups and the websites, it was like a list of my symptoms. I sent them to my husband. He was like, oh yeah, that's you. Mm-hmm. Um, Also, I really took a work break and it was really uncomfortable for me because I would go to events and meet people and everyone was like, what are you up to? Like, what's your big, because I always had a big thing. So true. And I would, I would, my first instinct would be to lie. (laughs) And then I actually began to just be like, you know what? I haven't got much on at the moment. I'm giving myself a break. And every time I said it, it got easier to say it. And actually then people began to say to me, oh my God, that's what I need to do. I'm like, oh, you're so lucky. Like, I'm so worn out. I'm so worn down. I'm so burnt out. Like, that's what I crave in my life too. And it opened up these beautiful conversations with all these amazing, ambitious women who were just on the edge. Um, And so I, you know, I'm working obviously back into work now more but I'm being really conscious of what I say yes to I think that's the thing with working in the media is it sounds so impressive working in it and the different facets and especially editing magazines and that sounds so impressive so when that's taken away and you don't have that um, draw card to tell people what you're doing you're like oh but I'm I'm just a mum right now and all of a sudden it doesn't seem enough which is it is absolutely enough or even like I'm just writing one book or I'm just you know I'm just editing a magazine because I always had these layers upon layers which is what really crushed me I was always juggling like five big things um so to yeah to just say well I'm just I'm just working on one article at the moment or something like that like it just crushed my ego to say it but I was just like I need to shift my expectations if I want to live a sustainably happy life with children and a partner I maybe could do all this when it was me crushingly lonely in an apartment on my own and I had all this time but actually I want a fuller life Mm. and I can't it's going to impact on all these other areas of my life if I just need to be able to boast about this long list of work projects I've got on exactly and it all it is is to serve the ego and make the ego feel good yeah because a lot of these you know the really impressive in quote things aren't the things that are paying your mortgage and not the things that are filling your day you know like my book the world is a nice place I love and it was such a passion project for me but financially it's not a big deal for me it definitely does not pay my mortgage and on a week per week basis apart from doing you know some media interviews and things it's not the majority of what I spend my time on but it is kind of the what I can hang my ego on so, you know, when people would be like, oh, tell me about your book, it started to feel a little bit fake as well. Because I'm like, well, I will, but that's only a real fraction of what my life is. Can I tell you about my babies? And can I tell you about this other stuff I've got going on too? 
but that didn't feel quite as kind of glorious as other things yeah no absolutely there's so many examples how you have turned your lemons into lemonade and we have discussed it from the books and the many many articles you've written which I think I feel like I've read every single one um and a lot of them were in the top publications of the world and then you've also got this incredible grassroots approach of helping people deal through their trauma by writing and you host these stories workshops to help people Uh, share their stories through storytelling and whether they release that or not isn't the end goal how rewarding has that been helping people at that real grassroots level Mm, I really love it so part of my work I help a lot of women write books about their personal stories or blogs or however they want to choose to get it out into the public and part of the reason was I was seeing people share their story in a way that made them really vulnerable. So like they were getting lots of clicks and they were getting lots of likes, but actually they were just riddled with anxiety. They felt sick every time they pressed post. They really weren't being conscious about how they wanted to share their stories. And a lot lot of their stories were quite traumatic or there were women writing about infertility and miscarriages and like broken relationships. And so they were being so courageous putting these stories out into the public sphere but they weren't being conscious about the impact on them. And obviously I know from my first book and from writing columns about my personal life, like it's fantastic if that makes you famous, but also you really have to be cautious about how you want to feel. Like I always say, when you post something personal on social media, people tell me like I'm courageous for writing about postnatal depression or whatever I'm writing about, but I do it in a way that doesn't take courage at all. I never feel nervous when I click post. I never worry about the ramifications because I'm really cautious with how much I share about myself and how I share it. And I think in this big overshare society, we are encouraged to be an open book, whereas you really don't need to be, even if you want to use your story to create a platform or profile you still don't have to put your whole self on the line. Mm -hmm. So that is a big part of how I coach women, how to raise your profile, tell your story in a way that raises your profile or promotes a cause or fulfills a purpose, but also protects you and your family. Mm -hmm. Because you're not normally just writing about yourself, you're writing about your ex or your child or your father and really thinking about them too. What kind of impact do you see those workshops having on the participants? I think that's just this real release in all of them because, you know, we all really, or many of us have a story that we would love to share and we really truly feel like could help other people. And I think storytelling is so important for healing, especially in motherhood, because, you know, in decades and hundreds of years ago, we would have sat around and all shared our stories and we're living in a disconnected world. So we all need to share like, you know, these are the ups and downs in our day. It's not as glossy as Instagram makes it look and this is how we overcome our daily challenges. Mm. And I think, so there are a lot of people who think like, I've been through this, I've come out the other side and I really feel like I could help other people by telling them. And I think giving them permission, one to say, actually you have a really great story that should be shared and then giving them a little bit of a guide about how to do it Mm -hmm. and taking away the fear of like, you don't need to tell us everything. Mm -hmm. Um, That's enough for them to have the freedom to be like, okay, I'm going to take that step. Yeah. And how important is that level of vulnerability while protecting yourself, Mm -hmm. as you were saying, in your healing process and being open and honest as, as you feel comfortable with? Well, I always say to all of my writers, there's literally two rules that I live by and 
every sentence in the world is a nice place was put through this filter, which is, is it 100% true? And is it 100% necessary to share um, to help someone else? And so if you're writing something and you put in a paragraph about, you know, an argument that you had with your ex, um, put that through that filter. Is this 100% how you view? And you can only speak about your perception of it, but is this my truth in how I remember it? And is it really beneficial for me to share for the reader to learn what I'm trying to share with them? And if it's not, just erase it. And, you know, I probably cut like 30,000 words of my book because it was a no to one of those questions. But when I sat down to record my audio book of The World is a Nice Place, there wasn't a single part that I regretted because of that. And you felt that uncomfortable, jarring feeling. And and we've all felt that. You know, you post on Facebook and then you feel sick and you think, should I delete it? Like, I don't think we should ever feel like that about anything personal we share. Or when you're out and you've had one too many drinks and you overshare and then you wake up with that anxiety in the morning. And that's why I I, I love doing podcasts because I never worry the next day. I always walk out because I've practiced this so much, Mm -hmm. thankfully, because of 15 years in media. I know exactly where my edge is and how much I share and I never step over that. And I write about sex with my husband and I talk about like, you know, so many things that people would say, oh my gosh, you were brave to share that. But I know where my edge is and I've talked about it with my husband where are collective edges mm-hmm. and he knows that I don't cross that. I have in the past and I've learned it the hard way. And I've hurt people and hurt myself. And so now I'm very clear. Yeah, that's really good advice. I'd really love to talk about your newest project, which we were discussing very early on. And I think it's absolutely genius. And it's children's books to read Your Charm Before Bed, but they also soothe adults. What sparks this idea? Really my darkest point after my son was born. So I had this idea to write a kid's book. And, um, you know, I was sitting on it for a while after my first child my daughter was born and I wanted to translate some of the coping mechanisms for my adult books into a way that a child could understand so I wrote these books I wrote like a whole series and pitched them got a bunch of no's from publishers as they do and I knew really that they weren't right and so I did nothing more they sat on my computer and then 18 months later when my little boy was born and then I had postnatal depression or depletion I And that coincided with having a a newborn who really didn't sleep. And then a toddler who started having night terrors at the same time. And there were literally nights where I would just lay on my little girl's bedroom floor. And so many mamas and fathers have been there and just cry in the fetal position. And whilst trying to put her to bed and give her good vibes and kiss her good night and soothe the baby and be a good wife to my husband. And just at the end of the day, having nothing left. And I realized that it wasn't only my little girl who I wanted to be soothed with a children's book. I really needed a reminder to myself, a little pep talk at the end of the day. Um, And so I deleted all the books and rewrote them in a way that didn't just soothe a child, but also gave a little pep talk to a parent. And so they are fictional stories that translate um, therapeutic techniques that are used um, with professionals. And um, at the end of each book, there's a little pep talk just for the parents or any grown up that reads it aloud to their child. Um, So it could be an educator or a grandparent or anyone. Um, And they're designed to soothe the whole family together. That is just the most incredible idea. And I wish I had things like this, which I've spoken about my very tough 2017 things like this would have just been a godsend and I can't imagine how many people are going to benefit have they've been out for a few months now is that right the crowdfunding campaign was in October 
um, which was kind of the big launch. So I, for the first time ever, I self-published because these books, I think they were so close to my heart and the, the story behind how they were born was so personal. I just needed to micromanage this one. Um, and so I crowdfunded the cost of the first publication print run um, and everyone got behind it amazingly. So we hit our target. And then the books arrived two weeks ago. So I have just been for the last two weeks with my poor parents up until midnight every night, packing boxes and sending them out to people. Um, so it's beautiful because they're just arriving in people's hands like as we record this. So I'm just starting to get Aww. some wonderful feedback from um, parents and like hearing my own daughter, I was saying to you earlier, she's had the book for a week now and hearing her repeat some of the sayings to my one-year-old like in the back of the car when he's crying use some of the soothing techniques on him and she's three and a half it's just the most validating <laughs> moment for me it just I'm like cr driving the car with tears in my eyes because I'm like I can't believe she's already repeating my words to use to soothe her little brother um yeah it's pretty magical you're doing a lot of work through these books and through your own work with your children to try and safeguard them from inheriting mental illness. How are you breaking that cycle? And it probably is obvious, but why is it so important for you to be doing that? Mm. I mean, I'm trying to. <laughs> I am definitely not like, you know, my children are going to be so happy and healthy. And, and it's funny because my little boy is very sensitive and I can see he will be for the, his whole life. He was my little girl, so resilient and confident and outgoing. And he is clearly just an empath. And he, it's beautiful watching him, but he feels big feels and he connects to other people's emotions. And that will be with him until his last breath. And so it's kind of teaching two different characters to emotionally empower themselves, which is really interesting to do. Um, I think I can't safeguard them from feeling any of the negativity of the world and I would never want to because it's also what made me me and the spectrum of my personality. But I always want them to know that they can take responsibility and ownership for their emotions even when I'm not with them. So of course it's so important to me to physically soothe them and to be there for them but I'm also aware that I can't be there all the time for them and you know they know that like mummy goes to work and daddy goes to away and my husband was just working the fires recently and like they need even at this age to know how if they happen to be in a room on their own and they feel fearful or sad or lonely what they can do to support themselves and a lot of them at this early age is kind of wrapped up in magic and visualization and fairy tales and my daughter talks to the fairies and a lot of it comes down to imagination right now. But of course, later it will become a little bit more about um, kind of real world tools to empower themselves. It's just such an incredible example to me about you turning situations that have happened to you into really finding the silver lining and, you know, um, passing that knowledge down to your children in such a safe and incredible incredibly thoughtful way why is it so important for anyone that is going through through a hard time to try and find that lemonade or that silver lining mm. I think God I think hope is what we all need and I had an amazing therapist who said to me like sometimes it's too much of a leap to try and jump from kind of heartbreak to happiness like we always like I'm heartbroken I'm gonna I want to be back to happy and that's my aim and she said if you can just step up to hope and then just sit there for a while and then one day you can look to take the next jump to happiness and that can be enough. And I think again, just like 
hearing stories of people on the other side, um, finding out tools that can maybe alleviate your heartbreak just for an hour. Like I remember when I was widowed, just being like, just get through the next hour, just get through the next day. You don't have to look any further ahead than that. If we can find hope, um, then we've got a chance of getting to happiness again. And the question I always finish um, with my interviews is what would the Amy now sitting in front of me with all this incredible wisdom tell the Amy in her darkest moments? Mm. I just think to to give herself time because as most people are, I was very impatient just to be over it. And just to know that if you give it time and, you know, take small steps to move forward every day, then one day you'll reach a space where you can say, maybe not I'm free of it, but you know I'm free enough of it to be able to live the full life that I want to live. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. I loved that. Loved chatting with you. Thank you so much, Amy. Thanks for having me. No worries. We'll chat soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lemonade with the incredible Amy Malloy. If you'd like to follow her on Instagram, you can do so at Amy underscore Malloy. You can find me, as always, at Elizabeth O'Neill. And your support of Lemonade means so much. So if you can hit five stars or leave a review or subscribe, all those ways really help boost the profile of the podcast, which will in turn help other people who perhaps really need it find Lemonade. Thank you so much for joining me once again. I'll be back in your earphones on Thursday with another midweek squeeze. We'll chat then. Thanks, guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.